Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, September 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, de Blasio drops out, Sanders reaches one million donors, key moments from MSNBC's Climate Forum, and a candidate anecdote from Booker. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. This morning, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio dropped out of the presidential race. He went on MSNBC's Morning Joe to make that announcement. Let's listen to that brief clip here. So uh, getting out there, being able to hear people's concerns, address them with new ideas, has been an extraordinary experience. Mm. But I have to tell you at the same time, I, I feel like uh, I've contributed all I can to this primary election. And uh, it's clearly not my time, so I'm going to end my presidential campaign, Hmm. uh, continue my work as mayor of New York City, and I'm going to keep speaking up for working people. Now, as with all major candidates who drop out, let's look back at some highlights from the de Blasio campaign. First off, he announced on May 16th of this year, which was very late. The only two Democratic candidates I'm tracking who announced later are Joe Sestak and Tom Steyer de Blasio spent just 127 days in the race. In an article for New York Magazine, Margaret Hartman summed up the New York perspective on the race. Quote, Despite a list of progressive accomplishments in New York, such as universal pre-K and raising the minimum wage to $15, what de Blasio contributed to the primary race was mainly an opportunity to make jokes about the wild unpopularity of his presidential bid. In the months before the mayor announced his campaign, everyone from former aides to his own wife expressed doubts about his run. In April, a Quinnipiac poll found 76% of New Yorkers felt he should not launch a 2020 campaign, with only 18% supporting the idea. These reservations proved well-founded. After he entered the race, de Blasio consistently polled around 0-1%, to and he had little chance of qualifying for the October debate. A Siena College poll released three days ago had de Blasio at 0% among voters in both New York City and New York State. End quote and ouch. So I'm going to pick one solid highlight from de Blasio's campaign. In a CNN town hall on August 25th, de Blasio gave an excellent answer to a question about immigration. Reading here from my own script the next day, quote, A student named Joy asked him the question, quote, wouldn't a guaranteed right to health care, including undocumented immigrants, only incentivize more undocumented immigrants to come to the United States? End quote. De Blasio thanked the student for asking the question and in a gentle way proceeded to reject its premise and explain what he called, quote, our actual reality, end quote. He went on to describe how President Trump's rhetoric around immigration creates a perception of immigrants as an invading force that somehow takes away from other citizens. De Blasio rejects that premise and gets into specifics about what he thinks the real problem is. End quote. And here is that clip. What we should do is make sense of this American reality rather than try to curse the darkness. Let's light a single candle. And I say not only do we need that comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway to citizenship, we also need a guest worker program to recognize that there's huge swaths of America do not have enough people to do work that's needed for our economy. And we could make sense of that with a guest worker program. And we could have an open and honest conversation. But to actually get to the heart of Joy's question, we have to acknowledge the really horrible politics underlying this, that for decades there's been an effort to demonize immigrants. It's been all about color. 
Remember, Donald Trump literally first day of his campaign attacked Mexican-Americans and described them as criminals, as an entire population. So this has always been about race, and it should not be, but it has been. If we recognize that there's many, many people in this country who happen to be American citizens, many of them happen to be white, who they themselves are legitimately struggling, their American dream's not working out, they're economically challenged, the next generation's not doing as well as they hope, they have a lot of debt, there's a lot of problems in their lives, they're frustrated, I don't blame them for being frustrated. But they've been told for years and years the immigrants did it to them. And I want to be blunt about it, the immigrants didn't do that to you. Wall Street did that to you, the big corporations did that to you. The guy in the kitchen or the guy in the fields didn't have the power to do that to you. Only those who had the power and the wealth could create an economy so unfair to working people and middle class people. So once we unmask that truth, and I think we should all speak that truth with energy, then we can answer the rest of the equation. Why do I think it's important to give health care to human beings who are part of our communities? Because they're human beings. If you don't give them health care, they'll get sick, everyone else gets sick, and then they will seek health care where, what we talked about before, in the emergency room, and guess who's going to pay for it anyway? All of us. Why don't we stop the fiction and help our fellow human beings who are part of our American reality? In an article for NBC News, de Blasio explains in his own words why he is leaving the race and offers some advice to the remaining candidates. Reading from that article, quote, I promise I'll fight for New Yorkers and workers everywhere to ensure there's an actual plan to protect their livelihoods from being automated out of existence. I'll also help ensure our party continues to be remade in the image of the activism I've seen all across this nation. Democrats must return to our roots as a party focused on bold solutions that speak to the concerns of working people. If we do not, we will lose in 2020. Yes, Donald Trump lies to working people, but he at least pretends to talk to them. That may be enough for him to win if we do not constantly make it clear that the Democrats are the party of everyday Americans in rural counties and urban centers, the coasts, and the heartland. End quote. Next up, yesterday I talked quite a bit about the elusive one million donor mark, which is a huge deal. Shortly after I stepped out of the recording booth, Senator Bernie Sanders crossed that mark as he had predicted. Sanders now has more than one million unique people in the U.S. donating to his campaign. And what's more, many of them have donated multiple times. There's not a whole lot more that we know right now, except that the campaign did say at least 125,000 of those donors have recurring monthly donations set up. This is essentially hinting that Sanders will have a good Q3 fundraising result, and saying it nice and loud before Q3 even closes at the end of this month. Even if his top-line number isn't the biggest in the field, he's likely to have a massive grassroots base. And if he has both, well, that's an even bigger deal. Now, I do want to read you one little bit from the end of a Politico story by Holly Otterbein that puts this all in perspective. Quote, According to Sanders' age, the top employers of his donors are Starbucks, Walmart, and Amazon. And the most common profession is teacher. In counties that voted for President Donald Trump after supporting Barack Obama, the biggest employers are Walmart, 
the U.S. Postal Service, and Target, the Sanders campaign said. In 2008, Obama reached the 1 million mark in late February. In his first campaign for the White House, Sanders' campaign said he received donations from 1 million people by early January. End quote. So, just to make that math a little clearer, Sanders has reached 1 million donors by September of the year before the election. In the previous election cycle, he reached that milestone in January of the actual election year. By contrast, Obama hit that number in late February of his actual winning election year. So, Sanders is beating Obama and himself in all of these metrics, and currently, by a lot. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Today marks the conclusion of MSNBC's two-day climate forum, and of course it's also the day of the global climate strike. As part of that, there is an abundance of discussion today about climate change. I want to bring you some key clips from the MSNBC event to give you a sense of where presidential candidates stand on some of these issues. First up, let's hear a brief snippet from Andrew Yang from yesterday on MSNBC. Here, he is answering a question from a student in the Georgetown audience. Listen in. We know that you love electric vehicles and you think it's awesome. Um, If you are the president of the United States, will you lead by example and order an electric presidential vehicle? Whoa! (laughs) Wow! Uh, Yes, I will, and I'll go even better. Uh, The entire White House motor pool will be electric. There's a proverb that says the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. We should have been doing this work 20 years ago, but... The second best time is now. And here's a clip from Julian Castro, where he ties his policies around refugees together with climate. Listen in. This is very connected to human beings and suffering and uh, you know, shaking up of their lives and destroying the quality of life and the homeland of a lot of people. Uh, so in my immigration plan a few months ago in April, I actually said that we should adopt a new category of refugee, a climate refugee. And then we mirrored that in our environmental or climate change action plan uh, because I believe that the United States does have a role to play in making sure that we do our part in addition to mm-hmm. combating the climate crisis, reversing the effects of climate change, taking people in who have been hurt and will be hurt by this. And finally, here's a clip from Senator Bernie Sanders in which he ties the issue of climate to overall themes of his campaign. Listen in. It seems to me you can approach this problem in one of three ways. You could do what Trump does, which is basically irresponsible and pathetic, and that is to... <laughs> 
And that's, I'm being kind to him. Or, Chris, you can do what some of my colleagues do and say, look, of course, climate change is real, but let's not overdo it. You know, we, we have a limited amount of money to spend here, and we've got to be modest, we've got to be realistic about it. And a lot of folks are saying that. Maybe, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I happen to believe in what the scientists are telling us, and that means that if we're going to save the planet, we have to be extremely bold. At the end of the day, you have executives in the fossil fuel industry and the oil companies, coal companies, gas companies. Their scientists know exactly what they're doing. In fact, as you know, there's strong evidence that ExxonMobil, their scientists were telling them what, for decades, that the product that they are producing is destroying the planet. So how do you deal with executives who are in companies making billions of dollars a year in profit and the product that they are producing, oh, happens to be destroying the planet. You got that? You got to deal with that. And we not only are going to have to tell them that they cannot destroy the planet for their short-term profits, politically, we're going to have to stand up to them. And essentially what my campaign is about, whether it's the fossil fuel industry, or the healthcare industry, which made $100 billion in profits last year, or the private prison industry, which makes money by throwing Americans into jail. We have got to stand up to the greed and corruption. I know those are strong words. Make some of you uncomfortable. All right? I don't know how much they teach about that here in Georgetown. There are a lot more clips out there from a ton of candidates. Check the links in the show notes. Basically, if you go to the MSNBC website, there is a lot more where this came from. In fact, while I record this show, the event is still going on, so I haven't heard from part of the field yet. By the time this show airs, the event should be concluded, so get yourself over to MSNBC and check out the highlights. And last up this week, a candidate anecdote from Senator Cory Booker. This one's a little long, but I thought it was a lot of fun, and it gets at several key themes Booker talks about consistently, including faith and multiculturalism and race, and how those intersect, sometimes at a party. Now, a quick reminder, every Friday we close out the show with a personal story from a candidate that is not specifically about politics. It helps if there's some humor in there, too. Now, if you've got a story like that from a candidate that you love, please send it to me. It doesn't have to be presidential, it doesn't have to be democratic, just has to be some candidate running in 2020 for any reason. Alright, so I found this particular clip in a long YouTube address from 2012 in which Booker spoke to students at Yeshiva University. This comes from right at the end. The full video is linked in the show notes. The things you need to know as setup going into the story are that it takes place at Oxford University in the 1990s, Booker refers to Rabbi Shmuley Boteach and Mike Benson, the latter of whom was studying modern Middle Eastern history at Oxford at the time and is a prominent member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which back in 2012 was commonly called just the Mormon Church. Okay, so let's roll the tape. Members of the Lahaim Society, or as I pronounced it before I walked into his place, the El Chain Society, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that... He created a space where all of us came together. So imagine this now. It's two years I've been in Oxford. 
I've now been coming to Shabbat dinner just about every week with Rabbi Boteach. I've been studying Torah. I ended up being the first in the history of humanity, and I challenge anyone to ever prove me wrong that I was the first uh, black goy head of a Chabad house uh, ever. Um, I could be wrong. Maybe there was another. Um, but I was a president of, of Shmuley's L'Chaim Society. Um, so imagine this end of two long years, and the years are very long when, you, when you're friends with Shmuley. Um, and and uh, we're, we're, it's, it's a Purim party, I think. And at the, Shmuley has these Purim parties that I know do not resonate with the Torah um, uh, because um, usually they're people carried to the hospital. Um, um, and I'll never forget, I'm sorry, again, making this story longer than it should be, but I remember coming in late to the porn party and all these people were lined up laying on the ground and people were jumping over them and then lying on the end for another person to jump and then they all cajole me to jump them. And I'm pretty good at the long jump, but I'm just thinking to myself, okay, I can see exactly what's gonna happen. The black guy is gonna jump the Jews, fall and hit one of them. It's gonna become an international controversy. Um, uh, I've never heard of the game Jump a Jew, but uh, I am not down for this shmooly at all. And, And so the end of the night, Everybody is passed out, okay? I don't, again, something about the Jewish faith and drinking large amounts of alcohol. Um, this is the faith I learned from Shmuley. Everybody's passed out except for three men. The Mormon, Mormons don't drink. <laughs> the large African-American uh, uh, goy, I don't drink. And Shmuley, who has the alcohol tolerance of a pregnant water buffalo. And, and, and so the three of us are sitting there and it, Mike Benson turns to Shmuley and says one of the sweetest expressions that to me embodied what I'm trying to, the message I'm trying to give. He says to Shmuley, this devout Mormon, he said to him, you've been a blessing to me. How you so fearlessly um, uh, live your truth. You're not ashamed of your religion. You don't hide it. You don't cover it. You are a Jew, not only in appearance, not only in garb, um, but the principles, the way you struggle to live the values of your faith. And you're very honest. You're not living up to them all the time, but you, you wrestle with that divinity trying to manifest who you are. You have given me permission to be more strong adherent to my own faith. You have made me a better Mormon. Now that to me blew me away. This Mormon saying to this Jew, watching you, you've made me a better Mormon. And Shmuley in graciousness and kindness said to Mike, he goes, I knew nothing about Mormonism before I met you. And you're the, you, are, you gave me my first book of Mormon. And to, he said this when we were being interviewed by CNN a few weeks ago. He goes, not only have you made me have a better understanding of your faith, um, but seeing how you too live your values, not in what you preach, uh, but in how you live. You've you've made me a better Jew. And I couldn't be left out. I had to say something. I'm like getting misty-eyed, and I turned to the two of those guys, and all I can think about to myself is I've spent two years every Friday night coming here, and I looked at Shmuley and Mike, and I said, guys, I've known you for two years. I've seen how much you live your faith. And I said, I've, I've come out every Friday night just to fellowship with you guys. And I just want you to know, you've done nothing for my love life. It's terrible. <laughs> it really stinks here. 
And so... <laughs> Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. I want to take a moment here in the outro to remark on the students and others who are protesting today around the world. If you go online today, or in many cases, if you go outside today, it is impossible to ignore the images and voices of huge crowds assembling to draw attention to the climate crisis. When you report on politics every day like I do, you end up with this weird mix of zooming the lens way in and then way out. Like one minute I'm talking about margins of 1% in one poll in one state, and the next I'm talking about catastrophes that threaten our entire planet. It's a weird place to be, and I appreciate the people who continue to speak up and force the issue on climate. It may now be up to the young folks, and if y'all don't keep speaking up, I don't think anybody will. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday.